Howdy ho, unfuckers and subfuckers, unkanuckers and down underfuckers, Eurofuckers and other voyeurs from around the globe that enjoy tuning in to our American political peep show. Hello to my man Crin, Pauline down under, Trick up yonder, Ish McGinty in a big rig, R. Dixon and the good Dr. Hub on the Cape, Miss Kitty, C.J. Lombo, Tommy Meyer, the Fox Barrow, not to be confused with Foxborough, Jason E. Starlotty and her buddy, Pennsylvania Kalila, or is it Kalila, and U.K. Bailey. We love you too. Well, and fuckers, I'm back from vacation and sufficiently riled up and ready to go with another deep dive into socioeconomic issues that plague our little republic. We have a packed agenda today, which is what happens when I have a little too much time on my hands, sand in my toes, and beer in my belly. This is a longer preamble than usual because I have some catching up to do. The first is some pod love up top for a show that I've mentioned before. I teased it a bit in a prior episode, but since then, I've added it to my regular feed. It's a show called Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. What I like about it is that Nick is an actual money-where-your-mouth-is kind of guy who made a ton of dough in his personal life, but fully recognizes the inherent inequality of our system. He's an advocate for the $15 minimum wage, a fierce critic of trickle-down economics, and a promoter of the middle class. And he also has some pretty incredible guests, like Stephanie Kelton, whom you know I love, Joseph Stiglitz, Naomi Klein, Pramila Jayapal. Nick does a great job of contextualizing issues of inequality and how the wealthy abuse the system in their favor through tax cuts, deregulation, and wage suppression. And he does it in a way that isn't loud or condescending. It's not one of those loudmouth talking head shows like us. It's smart, focused, and really well-reasoned. So, if you like the economic stuff that we do here on UNFTR, I really think you'll dig Pitchfork Economics with Nick. I also have to send a congratulations to our friends at Newsbeat, who took the New York Press Club Top Podcast Award again this year. It so happens that Newsbeat is a Manny Faces production, so I'm even more thrilled for him. Thanks. He's pretty thrilled for him, too. We're actually going to reference a great episode that they did a while back on the Kerner Report in today's show. So anyway, just congrats to the entire Newsbeat crew. And of course, Jesse Brown and the folks at Canada Land for collaborating with us on last week's show all about Canadian politics. Holy fuckballs. Uncanuckers came out of the woodwork to support us, tease us, correct us, but mostly just give us the thumbs up on our attempt to unpack the entire history of Canada. The one common piece of criticism came from a handful of Uncanuckers and even the folks at Canada Land who weren't all that thrilled at how we downplayed the Trudeau scandals. That's just how jaded I am with American politics, Uncanuckers. So forgive me for diminishing these. It's just that we're, we're just so fucked up down here that it really colors our view of what's right and what's wrong. I can't encourage you all enough to check out Canada Land and my new favorite show from them, The Backbench. I loved working with their crew, and I hope it's just the beginning of a wonderful collaboration, particularly as it relates to Indigenous issues. And speaking of that, our native roasted coffee continues to fly off the shelves at UNFTR.com, so thank you for that. For those of you who don't know how our show is supported or have reached out to ask if we're ever going to ship outside of the United States, I'll have some info on that in show notes. And lastly, before we begin... My undying gratitude and love goes out to 99 and Manny for letting me escape for a week. Suffice to say, they absolutely crushed the best of UNFTR sketches show and the O Canada show. Our takeover is nearly complete. It's only a matter of time. I... what? Huh? Not, nothing. Continue. Yeah, continue. Okay. Well, like I said, thank you for holding it down, you two. Awesome job as always. So my first working title for the show today was Digital Redlining. And then I built on it, and the next working title was, Holy Fuck, We Are Racist. But that was too obvious. So I settled on the economics of racism. Bootstraps, black banks, and redlining. There are a ton of sources for this episode that we'll link in the show notes, obvi, but the one that really took me apart and shifted the narrative of this episode is called The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. 
It's a couple of years old, but it filled in some really important gaps for me and altered my thinking on ethnic financing specifically. I'll be pulling from it a lot, so please check it out if you haven't already done so. We'll put it up on our store on bookshop.org. Our building blocks for today, meaning the prior episodes that are good primers, are Modern Monetary Theory, Fuck Milton Friedman, The Beatification of Ronald Reagan, Mass Incarceration, and Corporate Irresponsibility. So let's go, go, go. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Started a podcast Another basic white guy who Started a podcast But it's fun because he curses All through the podcast I'm First witness is Miss Viola Fletcher. Today I'm visiting Washington, D.C. for the first time in my life. I'm here seeking justice, and I'm asking my country to acknowledge what happened in Tulsa in 1921. The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seeing being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. This was part of 107-year-old Viola Fletcher's testimony this year recounting the Tulsa Massacre of 1921, living history that will frame our discussion. The Tulsa Massacre and burning of what's come to be known as Black Wall Street has been in the news this summer for a few reasons. It was featured in a dramatic episode of HBO's The Watchmen, it's been the subject of several documentaries, it's the 100th anniversary of the incident, and it's been used to counter the new right-wing obsession of critical race theory. It's this last point that got me thinking it was time to focus on black economics specifically. Now, as someone who presents as a white man in this country, it's astounding how much other white people are comfortable revealing in casual conversation. That old joke that every black joke starts with a white person looking over their shoulder is entirely true, though these days it seems like openly racist dialogue is more accepted than ever. So I'm going to play traitor to my perceived race up top and explore some perceptions that are widely held among whites in America. Not that everyone isn't familiar with them, I just want to put them out there so we can get busy dispelling some myths as usual and really talking about stuff that matters. The hard stuff. The tricky stuff. So here you go. Every other immigrant group in this country was able to break out of the ghetto within one generation. Why can't black people? It's easier in today's society to get ahead as a black person because they have all of the advantages through affirmative action, whether it's college or jobs. Black people commit more crime and come from broken homes. They have to fix themselves. No one else can. Slavery isn't an excuse anymore. It's a clean slate. One of their own became president, so they can't complain anymore. I worked my ass off to get here, and they just look for handouts. And of course, my favorite, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So white people, admit that you're having these conversations, okay? It's all true. Even in the most polite company and even among those who consider themselves fairly open-minded, these conversations really happen all the time. 
Here's a brief history of the black experience in the United States as told by a man I consider to be nothing short of a modern-day prophet. I am a black dude. <laughs> and don't ever forget how I got here. My ancestors were kidnapped. I don't even know where the fuck I'm from. They were put on the bottom of boats. They sailed them across the Atlantic. Many of them died. Only the strongest survived. And once they got here, they beat the humanity out of my people. They turned us into beasts of burdens. They made us do their work. And the irony is, hundreds of years later, they called us lazy. We fought in the Civil War. We damn near freed ourselves. And then in Reconstruction, black people did great. My great-grandfather was a very wealthy man. But then the black coats came. Jim Crow came. There was a hundred years of unspeakable oppression again. Lynchings, all kinds of terroristic acts to keep us in the margins of society. And yet we still fought. And Dr. King was born. And then things got better. 20 years after Dr. King was assassinated, Michael Jackson was moonwalking on television. Something, something, something. Barack Obama. I've heard the calls on fuckers that we need to do a CRT show, but now that we're getting to know one another, you know I can't just take a topic in the news and blab about it, do an interview with an expert, blah, blah, blah. I have to go back to the beginning and unfuck the whole thing. How can we as a nation speak intelligently about building a curriculum by scaffolding information properly so it's age-appropriate, culturally unbiased, and properly sourced if we don't even know our own history? Our media commentators weigh in so freely on CRT as though they have teaching degrees or vaccines as though they're epidemiologists. They whip the public into a frenzy so they can report on the gathering storm as if they didn't also cause it. So on vacation, I finally picked my head up to watch Life's Passing Parade. Every pickup truck with flags attached to the bed and a fuck your feelings sticker that went by, every Trump 2024 sticker or MAGA hat brought me back to the subject of language and how our diminishing intellect and short attention spans have disabled the parts of our brains that think critically and question authority. Make America great again. Trickle-down economics. The silent majority. Cut taxes. Free markets. Invisible hand. Smoke them out. The Patriot Act. Tax and spend. Job killers. Lock her up. America first. Looting. In the inner city. By thugs. Illegal immigrant. Radical Muslim. Pull yourself up by your own fucking bootstraps. Even if you don't own a pair of fucking boots. And when we want to counter these dangerous and coded sentiments, we wind up using words like systemic, structural, and institutional. You know what you mean. You've studied this shit. And you use words with deep meaning to you that are too broad for others who can just as easily remember bumper sticker slogans. To most, these are throwaway words, language of the pompous and elite, institutional poverty, structural inequality, systemic racism. What the fuck do these words even mean to someone working a nine to five job, wondering if they can put their kid through college without six figure debt, or maybe how the hell they're gonna afford the prescription drug they were just denied for the 15th time by their insurance company. They're not looking to do their homework. They're just looking for someone to blame. If you walk out of Harlem, ride out of Harlem, downtown, the world agrees what you see is much bigger, cleaner, whiter, richer, safer than where you are. They collect the garbage. People obviously can pay their life insurance. The children look happy, safe. You're not. And you go back home. And it would seem then, of course, that it's an act of God, that this is true, that you belong where white people have put you.
To understand the meaning behind structural, institutional, and systemic, we'll walk carefully through post-emancipation history to reveal why the economic challenges that have always and still face the black community in the United States are entirely different than any other ethnic group. We'll start by revisiting Ms. Fletcher's testimony and the burning of Black Wall Street. Free blacks migrated to Tulsa, Oklahoma after the Civil War during the nation's westward expansion. By 1910, blacks made up 10% of the population of Tulsa and had created a thriving and booming economy, which included a financial district in Greenwood that was known then as, quote, Negro Wall Street, and updated recently to be referred to as Black Wall Street. Note that some of the language in this episode will seem very anachronistic as we pull from historical accounts. Anyway, blacks in Tulsa during the 10s and 20s were some of the wealthiest members of the community. They had the highest priced and most opulent buildings, a thriving banking system, and speculative activities in the region created a boomtown feel. Among countless setbacks for freed blacks in the United States during the Jim Crow era, Tulsa stood as a beacon of progress and hope for what the future could hold. In May of 1921, all of that came to a crashing halt. On the claim that a black man assaulted a white woman, despite no evidence or charges, the man was held in prison and a white mob quickly formed. As Mersa Baradaran writes in The Color of Money, the white mob set the city ablaze. By the time the destruction was over, 18,000 homes had been burned, 304 homes had been looted, 300 people, mostly black, had died with many more injured, and two to three million dollars in property damage had occurred, including the lavishly built Zion Church, the heart of Black Greenwood. The wealth of black Tulsa residents was wiped out in a single violent night. And as Miss Fletcher would testify, it never returned, not for her or her family, not for any of them. When the Civil War ended, blacks in the United States possessed one half of 1% of all of the wealth in the country. Today, that figure is only 1%. What transpired between then and now is encapsulated by what happened in May of 1921. Not always in such a fiery and grand scale, not always, though certainly quite often, to such a violent and immediate extent. But it happened consistently, over and over, decade by decade. Every inch of economic progress and mobility was met with systemic, institutional, and structural barriers erected for the express purpose of suppressing the black people of America. And it wasn't only in the South. It was in the North and exported West during expansion. This wasn't a Southern thing. It was an American thing. As de Tocqueville wrote upon visiting America, quote, the prejudice of race appears to be stronger in the states that have abolished slavery than in those where it still exists. And nowhere is it so intolerant as in those states where servitude has never been known. 40 acres and a mule, as the saying goes, also the name of Spike Lee's production company. This was the first broken economic promise in a long line of broken promises that continue to this day. At the conclusion of the Civil War, President Lincoln acted on a gesture from a Union general who apportioned conquered plantations and land in the westward expansion to freedmen, recently emancipated enslaved people. Freedmen were to be deeded 40 acres to build their lives. After all, they were skilled agricultural laborers. The mule thing is more of a legend, as there were stray mules after the war that were given as property to a number of freedmen. The period known as Reconstruction, when this and other promises were made, was extremely brief. Nearly all of it was undone immediately by President Andrew Johnson, a devout racist. Southern separatists were all pardoned, and those who had their land confiscated had it returned. 
At this point, a series of new ordinances, followed by state laws and then federal laws, were passed to ensure that any post-war reparations and economic advantages were given exclusively to whites. Laws such as the Homestead Act that encouraged white settlers to move west with southern states forbidding the sale of land to black people. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the new west. You know. Morons. <laughs> but wait, there's more. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. So building wealth through land ownership was out. Black people were therefore forced to resume their labor activities, although this time they were part of the market and could command a wage, even if it was paltry compared to their white working counterparts. What to do with their money was another question entirely, as black people had never banked before. So a new movement was sparked. It's a movement that every black leader stood behind, from Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and W.E.B. Du Bois, to Martin Luther King Jr., Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, and Jesse Jackson. A movement that would be aided and promoted by multiple presidents from Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt to Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon and even fucking Ronald Reagan. Oh, and Jimmy Carter too. If blacks were going to get ahead, they needed to keep their money black. The Freedman Bank established by Lincoln was the first attempt at creating a black banking system and economy. It gathered pensions from deceased black soldiers and encouraged freedmen from around the country to pool deposits there, and they did. Small businesses, farms, churches, individuals, everybody poured money into the bank, and within a decade, it had more than 75 million in deposits. The crucial point here is that the bank was established as a savings bank and not a lending institution. So-called honorable white trustees were placed in charge of the fast-growing bank to safeguard it and help build wealth for Southern blacks to build lives with their newfound freedom. Unfortunately, that's not how wealth is built, and it's not how banks make money. Banks make money on lending, not saving. So over time, the bank's leadership changed and new trustees began to gamble in speculative ventures and push towards expansion. And for a while, it even looked like it was working. But remember, this is during the beginning of industrialization and capitalism. There were no bailouts, no FDIC, and no guarantors. Now, eventually, the speculative forces of this bank changed it into an investment bank to finance riskier and riskier endeavors, most notably railroad construction, and soon other banks began moving their garbage investments to the Freedman balance sheet. And then, along came the panic of 1873, and everything started to unravel. Even the great Frederick Douglass was appointed as head of the bank as a sign of strength. Of course, he knew next to nothing about banking, and it was indeed just a show. 
the white speculators had pilfered the bank's assets and loaded it with bullshit paper. And by the next year, the bank was lost, and along with it, half of the accumulated black wealth in the nation. Half. It would be years before black Americans would trust the banking system again, and when they did, they would repeat the mistakes of the past and continue to lose wealth time and time again, at times by their own hand, but then also codified by the institutional, systemic, and structural racism that was built around them. The True Reformers Bank, once called the, quote, Gibraltar of Negro business, was founded in 1888 and folded in 1910. The Alabama Penny Savings and Loan Company was founded in 1890 and failed in 1915 after a run on the bank. Nearly every black bank through history was destined to fail. But why? And why did it happen even when we had Keynesian protections in place later in the Depression to prevent the loss of deposits? If banks are banks and money is money, why did black banks fail while others succeeded? We have a long way to go before we can begin to talk about an economic system that is not based on exploitation and on the super exploitation of, of black people, Latinx people, and other racialized populations. Um, but I do think that we now have the conceptual means to engage in discussions, popular discussions about capitalism. Occupy gave us new language. Uh, the notion of the prison industrial complex requires us to understand the globalization of capitalism. This episode is not about the violent acts of open aggression promulgated by the Ku Klux Klan. It's not about forced segregation or lynchings. It's about the economics of racism. To show just how systemic, institutional, and structural these issues are, we're going to do a decade-by-decade -decade highlight reel to understand the inherent racism in economic policies that prevented a particular group of people in the U.S. from participating in any of the gains and prosperity that came from capitalism, industrialization, and globalization. Now, before we turn the clock back a century, recall from our Corporate Irresponsibility episode, Part 1, that one of the primary ways we accumulate wealth in this country is through inheritance and specifically wealth generated from the ownership of property. That is the foundation of wealth and mobility in this country that we have to understand as we run through the last century together. The 1910s. The country was still raw from the Civil War, and the South was steadily losing its economic edge to the North and the oil and gas and mining discoveries out West. States were increasingly devising laws and ordinances to prevent black families from acquiring property, moving from black neighborhoods, owning businesses, or getting government work. From The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. In 1910, Baltimore adopted an ordinance prohibiting African Americans from buying homes on blocks where whites were a majority, and vice versa. The 1920s. The country was rocking. Roaring, actually. The stock market was flying high and speculators were getting very, very wealthy in all corners of the bursting American economy. White landowners were amassing enormous tracts of land and building cities with gusto. Unfortunately, black families were specifically locked out of this newfound economic and physical mobility. Again, from the color of law. In 1926, Indianapolis adopted a regulation permitting African-Americans to move to a white area only if a majority of its white residents gave their written consent. In Florida, a West Palm Beach racial zoning ordinance was adopted in 1929 and was maintained until 1960. These were just examples of zoning laws that precluded black families from moving anywhere other than the ghetto. I selected these to demonstrate that these laws weren't just Southern. These were the laws of the land, all the land. 
the 1930s. I'm sure it's going to change by by now. I'm not, I know it's not going to. What goes up must come down. We all know what happened next as the nation and the world fell into the Great Depression. We'll spend a little more time in the 30s because the nation's policy response during the Great Depression would devastate the black community long after the rest of the nation recovered during and after World War II. From the turn of the century through the crash and the subsequent depression, black banks actually began to flourish despite the barriers put in place for land acquisition and mobility. Keep money black was the mantra. Now what we need to do is we need to keep everything in our neighborhood, everything black. Black owned with black money. Just like the Jews, the Italians, the Mexicans, and the Koreans do. And that's exactly what happened. What was made in the black community remained there. Both a blessing, but ultimately a curse. For example, John D. Rockefeller established the Dunbar Bank to, quote, help the Negro help himself by taking deposits in New York. But the bank was designed to be risk-averse, and so instead of investing in real estate and other business or home loans, it put the deposits into treasuries, you know, for safekeeping, like any good white patrician would do. Rockefeller promised that half of the shares of the bank would go to the community, but instead, he held on to all of it. The one big project it managed to build was a residential cooperative where blacks could earn into ownership of real estate. But Rockefeller, tired of this initiative and the bank during the Depression, foreclosed on the cooperative and shuttered the bank in 1938. Again, from The Color of Money. Quote, from 1900 until 1934, some 130 black banks came into being, 88 of which were formed between 1900 and 1928. The titans of black finance in the North were both located in Chicago, the Binga State Bank and the Douglas National Bank. At their peak in 1928, they controlled almost one third of the combined resources of all black banks in the country. Binga's bank was the first in Chicago to fail during the Great Depression. The reason Binga failed when some others didn't, as if it requires an explanation, is because the clearinghouse it belonged to rejected his request for an extension of credit during the initial shock of the crash. Quote, all the other banks that belonged to this clearinghouse were given aid and survived the Great Depression. On July 31, 1930, Illinois bank auditors closed Binga's bank and his depositors lost most of their savings. End quote. The Douglas National Bank, which had $2 million in assets prior to the crash, was the only black bank that was chartered as a national bank. It, too, failed after receiving no support. Aside from Rockefeller's soon-to-fail Dunbar Bank, New York had almost no black banks because New York's regulators continually prevented and blocked black bank charter applications. In fact, the Chelsea Bank, a white competitor downtown, was responsible for preventing most of the charters because it was the bank that took most of Harlem's deposits, even though it made no loans back into the community. So through the 1920s, Harlem's wealth was used to finance white projects elsewhere in the city. Beyond banking, this was the era of massive financial and economic reform as Franklin Roosevelt threw everything against the wall to salvage the American economy. One of the most prominent and enduring examples of systemic, structural, and institutional racism came from a 1933 act that created the Homeowners Loan Corporation to rescue homeowners from defaulting on their mortgages. The idea was to buy troubled mortgages and reissue them with longer and more favorable terms to prevent people from being thrown out onto the street. In order to determine which houses were in need of saving, the HOLC hired local realtors to appraise properties. So they created color-coded maps for every city in the nation with green lines demarking the good areas and red lines demarking the bad. And we all know what they meant by bad. And thus the term redlining was born, something we'll return to at the close of the show. 
Another of the reforms was the introduction of the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, in 1934. The FHA's underwriting manual explicitly prohibited lending in neighborhoods that were, quote, changing in racial composition. Naturally, the FHA utilized the maps drawn by the agents of the HOLC. Another protection put in place to prevent banks from failing in the future was the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, designed to insure banks against potential runs. This was especially important to banks that had high exposure as savings and depository institutions rather than property and commercial lending. This remains one of the most important protections in our system today, and it was actually lobbied for by the southern states, who also demanded that Glass-Steagall prohibit conglomeration, merges, or even bank branching across state lines. See, the fear was that northern banks, stronger by nature, would eventually take over the country and push out the states. So in order to get the FDIC chartered, banks had to hold a minimum amount of capital and submit to routine examinations. The rules were actually designed in such a way that chartering was done on a state level. And thresholds were set that deliberately created an excuse for the FDIC to deny black banks entry. This left the country in a situation for decades where every subsequent reform pushed black banks further into a corner. They had to stay within their boundaries, had difficulty even getting state charters. They were denied access to the FDIC for lack of charters and capital requirements and then excluded from FHA provisions deliberately, so lending at scale wasn't an option. Let's take a cleansing breath. And here we go. The 1940s. Even in the cities, blacks would be blocked at every turn. For example, in 1942, Metropolitan Life embarked on a project to build a 9,000-unit Stuyvesant Town housing complex on the east side of Manhattan, following up on another successful development in the city from 1938. To make way for Stuytown, the city cleared 18 city blocks and transferred the area to MetLife, along with a multi-decade tax abatement. Now, the project was originally designated for whites only, despite this actually by this time being illegal under federal law. But by the time the company was compelled by the courts to change their policy, every apartment in the development was already filled. This was during a time when the nation was at war, and more than a million black Americans were fighting abroad for U.S. interests. Of course, when they returned home, very little had changed. But hope was on the horizon. One of Roosevelt's last major legislative accomplishments was the passage of the GI Bill, which would assist returning veterans in myriad ways, including a mortgage guarantee. Now, for the 1.2 million returning black veterans, this finally offered the promise of homeownership outside of American ghettos. While the bill did not specifically exclude African Americans from securing its benefits, the filibuster did in a roundabout way. Southern racists filibustered the bill until a provision was included that allowed states to administer benefits such as mortgages instead of the federal government. And once the federal government lost control of the administration of benefits, the bill was basically DOA for black Americans who were turned away almost universally state by state, municipality by municipality. As Adam Gentleson writes in Kill Switch, which details the racist use of the filibuster in the Senate, quote, In the 87 years between the end of Reconstruction and 1964, the only bills that were stopped by filibusters were civil rights bills, end quote. Gentleson rightly notes that Southern Democrats ran circles around well-intentioned Northerners through the use of the filibuster, especially during the New Deal era, because, for the most part, they were aligned with Roosevelt. They were in favor of redistributing wealth, just only to white people. Oh my God, it continues in the 1950s. Now, by 1950, the FHA and VA together were insuring half 
of all new mortgages nationwide, half. The rest of white American homeowners were able to secure more conventional loans. As for blacks, there was another option. From the color of money. For scores of developments across the nation, the plans reviewed by the FHA included the approved construction materials, the design specifications, the proposed sale price, the neighborhood zoning restrictions, and a commitment not to sell to African Americans. With half of the home loans being issued by agencies that excluded black participation, a new market sprung up to fill the void. After all, everyone was working in America during this time, which meant that black people were just as employed as whites. The only difference was the only option they had to store their earnings and accumulate wealth was through small interests in savings banks. Because they were working and desirous of homeownership like everyone else, the new market that came along was something called contract selling. These were basically leases with options to buy that had punitive interest rates and penalties for late payments as extreme as total loss. In fact, by the 50s, 85% of the homes sold in Chicago to black families were sold on these contracts. With abundant employment, the seeds of wealth appreciation through homeownership and a booming economy, white America was sitting pretty and things were about to get even better with access to greater purchasing power. Well, for white men at least. Credit cards. The shift from installment payments to revolving credit lines was a revolution that cannot be ignored. It freed up capital and increased the velocity of spending like never before. The only people who weren't using credit to finance their lives by the 1950s were either really rich or simply black. Rich because they didn't need to. Black because they weren't allowed to. We all know nothing changed in the 1960s. In the name of the greatest people that have ever trod this earth, I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. In 1962, with federal urban renewal funds, Detroit began to demolish African-American neighborhoods. The first project cleared land for expansion of a Chrysler automotive manufacturing plant. Then, federal dollars were used to raise more homes to make way for the Chrysler Expressway, I-75, leading to the plant. In advance, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights had warned the expressway would displace about 4,000 families, 87% of whom were African-American. In Camden, New Jersey, an interstate highway destroyed some 3,000 low-income housing units from 1963 to 1967. Believe it or not, Nixon was welcomed with pretty generous black support initially, despite the distrust he personally engendered among black communities. Nixon was nothing if not shrewd, and he began to speak the language of what we now know as the so-called Southern strategy. Shift the conversation away from blatant racism and fear-mongering and leverage the coded language of economic dislocation and inherent racism. But for many in the black community, this was exactly the pivot they were looking for. On the heel of Dr. King's assassination and the brief victories of the civil rights movement, black leaders were actually looking for a way to build on their legislative capital and create economic capital. As far as they were concerned, the more the government left them the fuck alone, the better. I think that if we learn that, that we can depend on Big Daddy in Washington and begin to get together, uh, I think that 1969 could be the beginning of a new unity, of a new power, of a new cooperation uh, across the society of black people and poor people and people of goodwill. In practice, Nixon did leave them alone as he steadily began to walk back many of Johnson's great society programs. Clever little dick that he was, he made this look magnanimous by shifting the strategy to support black businesses and banking, 
but mostly in rhetorical and performative fashion. For example, in 1969, he created the Office of Minority Business Enterprise, OMBE, within the Department of Commerce. Now, the OMBE was not allocated any direct funds, but it was instructed to seek private business contributions and help from other federal agencies. It was given responsibility for advising, encouraging, mobilizing, evaluating, collecting information, and coordinating activities. It told Horatio Alger-like stories about black business people and little else. Nixon's Equal Employment Opportunity Office was created to foster employment, but it was also voluntary. So no one actually joined in. But hey, it was great PR for big business. And perhaps the most honest government report ever issued was the Kerner Report. I'm going to leave the rest of the 60s to this report, commissioned by LBJ and headed by Illinois Governor Otto Kerner. Quote, From 1950 to 1966, 77.8% of the white population increase of 35.6 million took place in the suburbs. Central cities received only 2.5% of this total white increase. Since 1960, white central city population has actually declined by 1.3 million. As a result, central cities are steadily becoming more heavily Negro, while the urban fringes around them remain almost entirely white, end quote. Quote, as the whites were absorbed by the larger society, many left their predominantly ethnic neighborhoods and moved to outlying areas to obtain newer housing and better schools. Some scattered randomly over the suburban area, others established new ethnic clusters in the suburbs, but even these rarely contained solely members of a single ethnic group. As a result, most middle-class neighborhoods, both in the suburbs and within central cities, have no distinctive ethnic character, except that they are white. End quote. Quote, Nor has the expansion of America's urban Negro population followed this pattern of dispersal. Thousands of Negro families have attained incomes, living standards, and cultural levels matching or surpassing those of whites who have, quote, upgraded themselves, yet most Negro families have remained within predominantly Negro neighborhoods, primarily because they have been effectively excluded from white residential areas, end quote. So by the end of the 60s, despite the gains of the civil rights movement, and just as it happened after Reconstruction, black people in America were relegated to ghettos, excluded from participating in the most prosperous decades in human history, paying more for crappier homes, buying things on installment instead of credit, and saving very little. Still with us? Good. I know it's a lot. And we're only up to the 1970s. In the 70s, Nixon's OMBE launches an investment initiative to extend credit to minority businesses. The fund was bankrupt within a year. The 1974 Fair Credit Reporting Act officially put an end to racial and gender discrimination by credit card companies. And while it worked for women, who were basically locked out of credit cards until this point as well, the lenders skirted the regulations for ethnic minorities by simply carving out certain zip codes. Hey, free market, right, Milton? You fucking pariah. Free market ideals began to take root with people like Alan Greenspan, who wrote that capitalism was under attack by black militants and said, quote, the charge of exploitation in the sense of value being extracted from the Negroes without their consent for the profit of the whites is clearly false, end quote. Greenspan had to say this, otherwise his entire premise of free markets and invisible hands comes crashing down in the face of the biggest market force in the U.S., racism. Then there was the SBA, with federal government contracts. By 1971, the SBA had allocated $66 million in federal contracts to minority firms. Multiple studies revealed, however, that 20% of these set-asides had gone to white-owned firms. The 1980s. Welfare queens, tax cuts, and trickle-down. 
By the mid-80s, middle-class black families had one-fifth the wealth of white families and half of black children were in poverty. And yet the war on welfare began in earnest with Reagan determined to take back any and every subsidy or program that supported poor families. Began his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, calling for states' rights, nothing but a code word for white supremacist control of Negroes. We know that. The whole Republican Party would reshape itself by that kind of subtle and not so subtle white supremacist deployment tactics and so on the southern strategy that the so-called spinsters used man i gotta say i am exhausted manny can you finish up the 80s yeah no problem listen to our episode on reagan fuck that guy max they should probably review the chicago school episode about milton friedman as well yeah fuck that guy too the 1990s in 1991 the environmental protection agency issued a report confirming that a disproportionate number of toxic waste facilities were found in african-american communities nationwide Another 1991 study, this one by the Federal Reserve, found widespread discrimination in home mortgages with blacks being disproportionately sold subprime loans, even if they qualified for conventional ones. This was the era that saw the explosion of subprime mortgages. Wall Street had already figured out that they could bundle mortgages into pools of investments called mortgage-backed securities, an incredible innovation that led to a massive spike in home loan originations because the packages spread the liability and were remarkably stable. So stable that Wall Street created something called a collateralized debt obligation, or CDO, that gambled on these packages even further by allowing them to be leveraged. But the whole thing was predicated on an influx of new mortgages. So the mortgage industry, once again, found its prey in the black communities and created the subprime lending market. Now, we all know how this story ended. Even blacks who qualified for conventional loans were pushed towards subprime loans in a coordinated effort by mortgage brokers who didn't have to worry about holding the loans on their balance sheets. Therefore, they needed to make more money on origination fees and higher punitive interest rates so they carried more value when they sold them. Seriously, what could have possibly gone wrong? Well, my, my firm offers uh, ninja loans. Oh, yeah. No income, no, no job. No, I just leave the income section blank if I want. Corporate doesn't care. These, these people just want homes, you know, and they, they go with the flow. Good for you. And to really put a fine point on the 90s, go back to our mass incarceration episode, which details the rise of incarcerated black men and women in the United States, all at the hands of the Clinton administration or read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Millions of black men and women were taken off the streets and stripped of their ability to participate in either our democracy or the modern economy for low-level, nonviolent crimes that ensured that new generations of black Americans would once again start from scratch with no inherited wealth or structure to stand on. The 2000s through today. And so our chickens came home to roost. We've covered a great deal in this already on fuckers. Dot-com bubble bursts with a brief recession and 9-11 and then W pours on the deficits, keeps those tax cuts rolling, builds the war economy and lets Wall Street do whatever the fuck it wants until the wheels come off the car doing 120 down I-95. The financial crisis wiped out 53% of total black wealth. 53%. How many times can an entire population's wealth be wiped out? The protracted recovery stymied by neoliberal caution and a Republican Congress determined to cut our first black president off at the knees at every fucking turn meant that the black community would recover more slowly. But we have a black president at least, right? He made it. So can you. 
except that this black president was the son of a mixed-race marriage whose white grandparents studied on the GI Bill, bought a house through the FHA, and moved to Hawaii. And so we're left in a situation where black families have, on average, net wealth of $11,000, compared to a white family's average of $141,000. Or as Pew Research puts it, white families have 13 times more wealth than black families. And of course, the most recent statistics coming in from Pew, the St. Louis Fed, Brookings, and others depict the obvious from the pandemic, that it was disproportionately brutal on black and Hispanic communities. Well, there you go. A hundred years of fuckery. A hundred years of economic ass-fucking delivered to one group and one group only. There are so many corollaries and tributaries of this kind of mass-scale, coordinated economic dislocation. I mean, we didn't even touch on gentrification. So much has changed since we last spent some time together. My neighborhood has gone through so much. It's gone through something called gentrification. <laughs> Can you say gentrification, boys and girls? It's like a magic trick. White people pay a lot of money, and then poof, all the black people are gone. When an area gets hot, whites will use their economic power to purchase properties, change zoning laws, condemn properties, whatever they want in order to improve a neighborhood, which is to say, gentrify it. Then there are schools and education. The education gap between blacks and whites in this country is staggering, and it all stems from the state's rights notion that local municipalities should control tax dollars for education rather than having an equitable distribution of dollars at the state or federal level. The result is the disparity in funding between white neighborhoods that enjoyed more than a century of economic development and opportunity and black neighborhoods that experienced the exact opposite. Think about Uncle Dick Cheese's thoughts. Hashtag callback. Fuck Milton Friedman. Yes, very good. Think about Friedman's thoughts on why blacks were less educated than whites in the U.S. He said it was due to a lack of school choice. Roll tape. Why do we have so high an unemployment rate among black teenagers? It's a disgrace and a scandal. Why do we have so high an unemployment rate? First of all, because we give them lousy schooling through governmental schools, which make them unqualified to hold decent jobs. And second of all, we require employers to discriminate against them by not hiring them unless, they have, uh, unless their productivity is enough to justify a minimum wage. The minimum wage rate is the most anti-Negro law in the books. Friedman's contention that the way districts were funded by local tax dollars necessarily held down black districts because they were poorer was correct. But his solution was that we should have school choice and vouchers. Now just stop for a second and think about how clever this argument is if you're willing to check your fucking brain at the door and just accept it. To Milton and all of his policy acolytes that followed his every word for decades thereafter, this was the beginning and the end of the story. But they never had the courage or desire to open just one more fucking door and ask why blacks were all gathered together in these districts in the first place and had less wealth. Open one more door and you find a torrent of explanations like the ones we just went through today. Blacks were discouraged from moving into white neighborhoods by realtors, mortgage companies, and homeowners associations. Or they simply didn't qualify for the homeownership programs made available to white populations even if there was income parity between them. And if they somehow overcame these obstacles, they were oftentimes met with violence from their would-be neighbors. Garbage thrown on their lawns, crosses burned on them, even in the North. Ridicule and exclusion from community gatherings and activities. To Friedman and other pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps economists, 
These social factors were inconsequential because they frustrated the political and social realities of their pristine economic models. But think about something as basic as the price of food. In the Kerner report, they noted that on the whole, food prices were relatively stable regardless of neighborhoods, income distribution, or class. However, they opened another door. They went a step further and looked at the purchasing habits. Because densely populated ghettos were generally what we would now term food deserts, meaning they didn't have large-scale grocery stores, most community members were forced to shop at smaller local stores. First off, because they typically didn't have access to automobiles because they didn't have the credit to purchase them, so there's that. Further, because they had smaller incomes and less savings, they shopped more often and in smaller quantities. The smaller the quantity, the smaller the discount. And because they were independent stores, the operators themselves typically had to mark up these smaller quantity items because they couldn't afford the purchasing power advantage the larger chains had. Just keep opening doors on fuckers, and eventually you'll get to the root cellar. Then there's the modern version of redlining that has crossed over into the digital realm. Digital redlining is finally an issue receiving some policy attention, but it remains somewhat of a hidden issue that further masks the structural issues that black people have to accessing the economic engine of capitalism. During the pandemic, an iconic photo was taken of young girls doing their homework in the parking lot of a Taco Bell in California. Why? Because connectivity wasn't robust or fast enough in their home communities to keep up in school. Why? Because redlining never ended, and communities of color have been conveniently passed over by companies responsible for laying fiber and enhancing connectivity. The pandemic, for better or worse, brought the disparity to light. Uncle Milton and his colleagues actually bear some direct responsibility for the gaps in digital access, even though the internet wasn't a thing when they were writing about it. But recall from our Fuck Milton episode that the Chicago school economist Ronald Coase was the godfather of deregulatory thought when it came to auctioning off Spectrum. Instead of it being an equitable distribution system, Coase argued that Spectrum should be placed in private hands to moneyed bidders. This was the basis of the deregulatory period from the 90s on that placed Spectrum in private hands instead of treating it as a public utility that should represent the communities they served. So because the FCC took steps to sell access instead of mandating it and regulating it as they did when phone lines were distributed across the nation irrespective of density or ability to pay, the internet was allowed to grow and expand through private hands without the threat of regulation. Now that our economy requires high-speed access to be competitive, the absence of regulators has created a situation where wealthy end users are getting fiber, but predominantly low-income users aren't being transitioned off legacy infrastructure. The result being digital redlining of broadband, where wealthy broadband users are getting the benefits of cheaper and faster internet access through fiber, and low-income broadband users are being left behind with more expensive, slow access by that same carrier. According to a joint study last year from the Alliance for Excellent Education, National Indian Education Association, National Urban League, and Unidos U.S., it found that 34% of American Indian Alaska Native families and about 31% each of Black and Latino families lack access to high-speed home internet versus 21% of white families. Microsoft, which tracks how quickly people downloaded software and security updates, estimates that 120 million people, or more than a third of the U.S. population, don't use the internet at broadband speeds. Adding insult to American exceptionalism, compared to the rest of the developed world, the Open Technology Institute has found that the United States has, on average, the most expensive, slowest internet among modern economies. 
the fix for this is pretty simple. But there's absolutely zero political will on either side of the aisle to piss off the cable and telecom giants. You see, the FCC could have reclassified broadband as a telecommunications service, which would have placed them under the old telephone rules and required the companies to provide access, no matter the profit picture. Oh, but God forbid we hurt the free market. What about those poor companies that will lose money connecting poor and marginalized people to the internet that would make them competitive in the marketplace? Which companies are we talking about? Is it Verizon, who booked a $41 billion profit in just 2020? Comcast with a $10 billion profit in 2020? AT&T, who booked $27.5 billion in free cash flow last year? Remind me again, which one needs our help? I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. Every politician in America takes money from these organizations. Bernie, Joe, Orange Von Fucknugget. They all take in telecom money because their racism and anti-poverty actions aren't as obvious as drawing lines on maps and saying, don't give money to these people. Hernan Galperin, an associate professor at USC's Annenberg School for Communication, said, quote, There are significant differences in what happened then with mortgage redlining and what's happening now, but you could argue that ultimately the result is the same. And what about those companies that rely on the digital infrastructure of the nation? You'll never fucking believe it, unfuckers. An investigative report from Bloomberg News revealed a shocking racial disparity where next-day Amazon Prime delivery was available. The maps were like a bad fucking joke. Four out of the five boroughs in New York City had Amazon Prime. The one that was excluded was the boogie down. That's the Bronx for anyone following along at home. In Boston, literally every single neighborhood had Prime availability, except for Roxbury, the predominantly black neighborhood smack dab in the middle, like a donut hole carved out. Chicago, everywhere but the South Side. And so on across the country. There are other aspects of economic oppression that aren't as obvious. Think about the co-opting of culture that has occurred, from jazz and blues musicians having their work pilfered with no credit and an entire industry growing around this appropriation. Just ask Led Zeppelin where they got most of their songs. Or the fleecing of Motown artists by white record labels and executives, exploitation films, the lack of black owners in sports dominated by black athletes, this trend continues today as highlighted by the recent black TikTok strike where black creators have staged a walkout on the platform. One of the sparks for this performance strike might seem meaningless to most people who think TikTok is just a waste of time, but the amount of money generated on this platform for artists who know how to leverage and promote their music, choreography, and comedy is astounding. The spark was an appearance on Jimmy Fallon where influencer Addison Rae performed a number of viral dances that were actually choreographed by black dancers without credit. Compare Ray's $5 million in compensation in 2020 from TikTok to one of the black choreographers named Jeliah Harmon, who made $38,000 in the same period. This might not seem like a big deal to most, but it demonstrates how widespread and resilient the barriers to monetization are for black creators. Now, when he's not winning awards for podcasting with Newsbeat or banging his head against the monitor trying to edit Unfucking the Republic, Manny Faces is a hip-hop journalist and scholar who's lectured all across North America about the business of hip-hop, appropriation, and the intersection of hip-hop, politics, and economics. Very few people can speak to the business side of the industry as Manny. Thanks, Max. Yeah, there's a ton behind the concept of co-opting material and theft of compensation in the black creator community that, as you point out, has been happening since white people ripped off the blues. But there's also the concept of giving back to the community. With the rise of the hip hop mogul over the years, a lot of talks revolved around owning not just the work, but the means of production, distribution, merchandising, etc. We've seen this from the likes of Russell Simmons, Master P, 
Puff Daddy, a.k.a. P. Diddy, a.k.a. Puffy, a.k.a. Sean Combs, Diddy, or currently Sean Love Combs. Yes, really. And we've seen folks like Jay-Z move past record label ownership, proving himself not only a shrewd and successful businessman, but a business man. And on the surface, a stake in title streaming and Rock Nation or Combs and his Revolt TV might allow for some uplifting of the communities from whence these superstars came. But does it go far enough to help uplift the black community as a whole? After all, Simmons owned and operated influential leverage building companies, Def Jam Records and Fat Farm Apparel, until he sold them. His foray into the financial market, the Rush Card, a prepaid debit card, was not only fined millions for operational issues, but heavily criticized as nothing more than a money grab, not the credit building financial literacy tool for black folks it was presented as. Again, it's notable that Simmons, who's been MIA from the public eye after facing damning sexual assault claims, sold Rush Card for $147 million in 2017. And back to Jay-Z, he was applauded for his partial ownership of the Brooklyn Nets and Barclays Center. But on the flip side, he's faced criticism for what those endeavors did to gentrify downtown Brooklyn. Overall, his string of profitable business ventures have done very well for him personally. And while he's used his influence in areas such as social justice, there really isn't much impact to point to when it comes to uplifting the overall financial well-being of black America. Now, Killer Mike is very vocal about this. The Buy Black, Bank Black advocate helped start black and brown-owned financial institution Greenwood that is squarely focused on that keep black dollars in the black community mantra. But while it presents as a bank and has welcomed tens of millions of dollars in deposits, it's not a bank. It's not FDIC insured. And based on this entire episode, I'm really curious if it's something that is as revolutionary and frankly, as helpful to the cause as it's being presented. Uh, maybe the one we should be paying attention to is Nas. Though most would know him as a respected veteran artist, he is in fact also a highly successful venture capitalist. Queensbridge Venture Partners, which Nas co-founded in 2014, has helped fund iconic startups, including Lyft, Casper, Dropbox, and Ring. This might be the kind of thinking that's really needed to help pave the way for other black artists to look beyond just monetizing creativity in traditional ways or dabbling in questionable financial services to look toward greater participation in established capital markets to finally have the leverage needed to escape any efforts that could be made to shut them down and to pass this wisdom around in the uniquely effective ways that only hip-hop's masters of ceremonies can. And that ties into our conclusion coming up shortly in one of the central themes of research we've done for today's show that quite frankly turned my head 180 degrees on the subject of black money and black finance. So it's time to answer the questions that we posed up top. Every other immigrant group in this country was able to break out of the ghetto within one generation. Why can't black people? Answer, because they were prohibited entry to communities outside of the ghetto. Pretty simple. First through violence, then legislation, and then just endemic policy. It was death by acronym. The FHA, FDIC, GI Bill, VA, HOLC, all created and maintained policies to prevent black people from obtaining mortgages and accessing the mechanisms of wealth building and preservation. While the policies may have been eradicated, the practices remain to this day. It's easier in today's society to get ahead as a black person because they have all the advantages through affirmative action, whether it's college or jobs. Okay, well, your numbers are incorrect to begin. The only ethnicity with larger education participation than their population ratio is Asian. 
The population that remains underrepresented in higher education compared to their proportion of the population is black people. Because the black community has less accumulated and inherited wealth and has been barred from participating in the broader economy outside of their community solely on the basis of their skin color, few even have the means to access higher education. And when they do, they're charged higher interest rates on their loans. Black people commit more crime and come from broken homes. They have to fix themselves. No one else can. Okay. Well, black people commit crime at the same proportion as all other races, but are more likely to be targeted and convicted of crimes than white people and given longer, harsher sentences. They also lack the economic means to procure proper representation. The real conversation should be about class, as poor people are victims and perpetrators of crime more than rich people. It's not a race thing. It's a money thing. Slavery isn't an excuse anymore. Clean slate. Well, a clean slate would require complete access to the housing market, a change in the way schools are funded, equitable access to broadband, low interest rate loans, and revolving credit. No historically marginalized group has broken the cycle of poverty without access to these mechanisms, and no group outside of the black community has been systematically, legislatively, violently, and purposefully excluded from doing so. None. One of their own became president, so they can't complain anymore. President Obama is the ultimate Horatio Alger story because even his is a story of access through his white grandparents who availed themselves of the mechanisms of wealth and access established in the New Deal. I worked my ass off to get here and they just look for handouts. White people receive more handouts than black people, so there's that. And when given the same opportunity, blacks have demonstrated historically an equal ability to acquire wealth and build communities. The difference is that white people have actually fucking burned them down, like in the case of Tulsa. And of course, my favorite, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, as the good Dr. King said, you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you haven't any boots. All of this leads me to a conclusion that is half obvious and half not. Since the Civil War, black people in America have enjoyed access to all the benefits of society and government. For about 10 years total. The handful of years post-emancipation and prior to Jim Crow laws and Southern codes, and the period between the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and the election of Richard Nixon. That's about it. The rest of U.S. history belongs to white society. Black leaders through history got it exactly wrong on matters of finance and banking. This was the hardest part for me to wrap my head around. Keeping money black and building black banks inside black communities was a trap that guaranteed credit and income appreciation were off the table and banks would remain undercapitalized and fragile. The answer is more Nas than Jay-Z. To participate in the broader economy, the black community has to look beyond its own ability to bank and create access to capital and credit. It has to retain its cultural heritage while assimilating its finances into the broader system so it's harder for the white economic establishment and political leaders to isolate it and crush it through violence, policy, or both. And the one commonality between the post-emancipation and post-civil rights movement is that these brief periods were forged in revolution and upheaval, war and riots. The only reasonable conclusion one can draw from this is that the only way for the black community to move forward is to revolt. It's the only thing that appears to work, even though the results are temporary. But no one wants that, least of all the black community. So the real answer is reparations. 
Every 10 years, we wipe out the wealth of half of the U.S. population, thanks to Milton Friedman and Ronald Reagan. We've established this as a building block to this episode. That is our quasi-capitalist free market model that resulted in oligarchy. Unfuckers have this part down. So now if we add to the equation that black people have been systematically denied access to wealth accumulation to begin with, then the combination of free market neoliberalism and racism ensures that black mobility in the United States will forever be out of reach. So this is where our MMT and culture cancel episodes now come into play. We know we can pay for low interest rate debt programs, so we should establish a fund that does exactly that but solely for black and Native Americans and for the purpose of acquiring property. There should be an insurance guarantee corporation that undergirds a revolving credit market for discretionary purposes that are available only to black and Native people. Federal school loans should be refinanced at the lowest rate possible for all Americans, regardless of income or race. Child credit payments should never revert back to tax credits. They should remain as payments. The FCC should reclassify telecom companies to compel them to lay fiber in every community. Amazon should just go fuck itself. Absent such reforms, change is impossible. Absent these reforms, revolution will come again. Fuck your bumper sticker ideology. Read a goddamn book. Reparations now or revolution later. Here endeth the lesson. It's so much fun. Hey-ho, unfuckers. Wow, I am so glad to be back. You'll notice the absence of a skit this week. Again, I kind of fell into the place where uh, the material was so heavy that uh, I had very few ha-has left in me by the time I got through it. We got a lot of feedback, by the way, on the sketches, and it seems like most everybody digs them and have some fun. But a couple of comments mentioned that uh, they didn't love them in the middle of the show. And I found that kind of interesting. So we might play around in the future with where the sketches land or how we format them. But I do think at some points it's kind of important to have that mid-show palate cleanser. So anyway, it's a growth show. Things will change. We'll keep evolving and we'll keep staying on top of things. Another comment that we've been getting a lot is from people outside of the United States uh, looking to uh, support us by buying our coffee, but we don't ship outside of the United States just yet. And the other thing is people in the United States kind of balking at the shipping rates. So I just want to talk about that a little bit. So everybody knows that we fund the show by this partnership that we have with Native Coffee Traders. Essentially, the mantra here is to help build indigenous economic development by partnering with indigenous communities to sell products. And uh, it will help support the show, but it also supports the indigenous communities. That's where if you go to UNFTR.com, you can order the coffee and we get to you know buy wholesale exclusively from native coffee traders. Helps them, helps the show. Everybody's happy. As far as shipping outside of the United States, we're not there yet if you really felt compelled to support the show because we do pour our hearts and souls into each episode. We still believe this information should be free, though. 
So, you know, if you can't order coffee because you're outside the United States, but you want to support us, there is a buy us coffee button, which allows you to make a donation. We do not want to create that like Patreon like compelled situation where you have to donate to us every month. We kind of want to do it when you got the dough and when the spirit moves you. If something was important to you, great, send us a donation. If not, the goal of actually creating this coffee partnership is if you are a coffee drinker, just buy this coffee instead of buying regular coffee at the supermarket which gets into the pricing discussion and gets into the shipping prices for people inside the United States. The reason that we ship inside the United States through the post office only and we don't have a partnership with UPS or FedEx or other carriers is because fuck them. We want to support the union workers and the U.S. Postal Service. And one of the ways that the system is set up is it's very difficult for us to predetermine the shipping weights and give shipping away for free. Plus, if we did that, we would have to actually raise the price of coffee by about a third. So when we first sat down, we said, what should this coffee be priced at? And how can we give people discounts along the way, knowing that they're going to have to pay for shipping? So what we did was we created a price point that is right in line with what the coffee should be. Now, I've seen this coffee for similar coffee for $20 to $25 a 12 ounce bag. And we don't price it at that. We price it at around, what is it, $13, I think, right? Because that's what the price should be. But you do get a discount if you order three or more, which essentially covers the cost of shipping. So we tried to do it in an equitable way, as fair as we could, to honor our partners, to honor the US Postal Service, and to honor the unfuckers that want to support us. But here's the deal. You don't have to send us anything. We believe our information should be free because it's important stuff. That's why we don't charge for Substack, for example. So if you go to unftr.substack.com, you can sign up. You can get all of the essays that we send. We don't believe in this bonus content thing because we're pouring our hearts into everything. We want to give all the information to you because it's really important information for people to become politically aware. So that's the whole philosophy behind everything. I hope that explains a little bit about the shipping issue that some people have brought to light because it is expensive sometimes to buy like a one-off or two-off bag, Uh, but we try to build it in so it makes economic sense for you as an individual. But remember, not going to charge for the content, so you can just keep getting it for free. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Now I'll get into book love and pod love. Book Love, you heard me reference it a lot. The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap by Mirsa Baradan. Oh, Mirsa. Now you gave me the pronunciation here. Fucking best 99. Anyway, it's called The Color of Money, Black Banks, and the Racial Wealth Gap. Then you have The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate by Adam Gentleson, which I believe is already in Bookshop, right, for us? And uh, a new one we just added, The Essential Kerner Commission Report, edited by Jelena Cobb. Now, for pod love, you heard up top, we love uh, Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, so put that in your feed. And also Newsbeat. We have two links in the show notes, one for the Kerner Report and another cool one on redlining, but redlining and climate change, a deadly combination. The Newsbeat team did a great job with both of those episodes, so I encourage you to check it out. Now, back to coffee. Holy fuckballs. While I was away, we were ringing the register because unfuckers were sending the love to Manny and 99 and helping me uh, lay out on a beach in a coma. Thank you for that. Derek R. sent us 10 coffees. Derek is a serial contributor. My man, pots and pans, you're the best. Thank you for doing this. He said, I'd call any episode or your culmination of the Chicago school your magnum opus, if not for the fact that I have full faith that you and your team will continue to raise the bar. No pressure. Dwayne bought us five coffees, said the best podcast I've come across in years. Rafe, or Raf, 
Now, I have a friend named Rafe and I have a friend named Raf. So I'm not going to go out on a limb. But this dude, Rafe Raf, sent 20 coffees. That's a lot of dough and had probably one of the best statements. He said, thanks for this being such an amazing podcast, et cetera, et cetera. As an Aussie, I have to fucking apologize for fucking Murdoch, mate. Not literally fucking Murdoch. I mean for him fucking up the media landscape. Fuck, here's an image I won't be able to fucking get out of my fucking head now. Fuck. <laughs> I know I keep butchering the Aussie accent, but uh, Rafe Raff, you're the fucking best. He loves the fucking shit out of our show. Well, we love the fucking shit out of Australia, I'll tell you that. Uh, lawyer Cynthia bought us five coffees, said, Max, Manny, 99, always make my day. Well... Thanks for making ours. Damien M. sent a coffee. Here's a cool one. I love UNFTR. I especially love that you make the effort to produce a version of the show that is easier for people of different hearing abilities. As someone with cochlear implants, this means a lot to me. Yes. Don't forget, unfuckers. You can go. And then, by the way, this is a 99 invention. And she insisted that we do this when we launched the podcast. Uh, so all full credit goes to her and her dedication to accessibility. If you go into show notes, you can find always a version that doesn't have music beds in the background. Now, on Facebook, CJ, this is important. CJ's uh, from Canada. CJ loved the episode, said we did a great job. And as a Canadian, there was so much that uh, CJ could relate to. Cool. Kyle C, loved the episode. Had me tearing up in the beginning when learning about the indigenous children. Yes. Lonnie P, by the way, said 99 did, in fact, kill it. I agree, 99. Me too. All right. Darling Mickey, I'm not going to sing again. Y'all, if you haven't listened to this podcast, I highly recommend it. It also shows how Canada does take responsibility for colonization and murders of indigenous peoples with complete apologies. Complete with apologies, rather. Christian G. Found your podcast through Best of the Left. Love you, Jay. Jay, we love you too. Jay and Amanda from Best of the Left. God, we love you guys. I tell you, if not for Jay and Amanda, this podcast, this unfucking the Republic, <laughs> boy, I don't know if we'd still be here. Anyway, Christian said, you've taught me so much. I crave more after every show, waiting impatiently for next week's episodes. Thank you for that. BJK, just listen to MMT again. Any thoughts on tying crypto into the topic? Yeah. This is great. He says, I bought a car with Dogecoin. Is that how you say Dogecoin? It's Doge, right? Doge. I bought a car with Dogecoin earnings. And I still have no fucking idea how that happened. That's awesome. I have not gotten into crypto personally. I understand enough about it uh, to be dangerous. Here's what I'll say about crypto and MMT. We're going to have to revisit it and we're going to have to put something out on it. The It essentially comes down to this. As a currency... It will not be necessarily used as a reserve currency. It will not uh, become a government-originated uh, currency that would uh, help an economy flow. But when it does become a central store of value, when we've decided which crypto will become the prevailing currency and store of value, which right now seems to be Ethereum on, in the lead, then it might change things if banks internationally are willing to settle funds in that crypto. It is going to have to be far less volatile. It is going to have to have a an accepted reserve cost, meaning the store value will have to be accepted internationally and more countries would have to participate in it. It's coming. It's coming fast. And I don't think it's going to impact MMT and how governments finance their deficits. But even if it becomes a reserve currency for the uh, entire world, it'll be something closer to the gold standard, which don't forget, we basically said the gold standard can go fuck itself. So we still have the ability as a sovereign currency issuing nation not to settle our debts there and not to transfer money internationally based on that or print our money. We'll do something bigger and longer on that. 
but it's just not fully marinated yet. Uh, hey, Suzanne, SJ, another informative episode, Max. I'm addicted, can't get enough. Waiting impatiently for Saturday's drop. On the Twitters, Wild Eye Bob said a great explanation as to why the native residential school scandal is such a big deal in Canada. Hashtag FMF, hashtag FRM, and hashtag FRojo. Rojo. I don't know. Hey, Wild Eye Bob, who the fuck is Frojo? <laughs> Jason Entine started hearing about your pod via David Pakman and then again via Canada Land with Jesse Brown, binging the whole season, enjoying every minute. Hey, thank you for that. Giselle, priceless, classic, a must listen to my Canadian friends and my sibling Americans to the South. Oh, Giselle, another Canuck. An uncanucker. On Insta, Starlotti. Starlotti says every time Cuomo launches into his black and white and gay and straight and she bursts out laughing. So do we when we put it together, quite honestly. And it's like we always find a situation to work it in. This week's a little touchy because... Touchy is the operative word. It sure is. I mean, I had predicted at the end of the Cuomo quickie that he would never leave. That it was a fucking fantasy that anybody would try and kick him out. And I'm sticking with that. 100%. Right? I mean... I do slip sometimes and say, ciao, Bella. Jesus. Daniel said, uh, thank you for such a respectful Canadian episode. Here, here, Daniel. Here, here. Privately, on emails, I've got Wendy T, Derek R, Trick, Barbara, Barbie, uh, JPD, Patrick, and, and uh, Pauline. Uh, I will get back to you promptly. I don't write emails while I'm writing the show uh, because I can't do two things at once because I'm stupid. So uh, I will do that uh, now that this is wrapped. Hopefully you've heard from me by the time you're hearing this. Um, we do want to call out an email exchange with Patrick that he wrote in and he asked about our pod love episodes and where he could find them. So we do actually have a Spotify playlist that we'll link in the uh, episode show notes that has all of the episodes that we recommend. Love it. Thank you, 99. You're welcome. Ishmigiti, cruising down the highway in a big rig, listening to UNFTR, thinking about ideas on CRT. So uh, Ishmigiti had you in my mind um, when I was putting the episode together. I hope we did a good job just beginning to unpack, the, I guess, the foundation of what will be themes towards a CRT episode. Brian W., I listened to your comedy sketch compilation. I haven't observed this kind of comedic energy on the left since the days of Morning Sedition or Air America Radio. Make the left great again. Hoo-ah! That's actually pretty high praise. That's like fucking Sam Cedar, right? Ginny Garofalo. Some some funny shit that came out of Air America. Al Franken was on there before he was a senator. I'm dating myself. Reviews. D. Liller. Deliler. Deliler. Said well-researched, zero factual errors throughout. Well, that's a high standard. And highly entertaining. I'm an avid podcast and audiobook listener. I have to say, this is the best podcast I've come across in years. Hey, unfuckers, unkanuckers, subfuckers, unfuckers down under, if you believe that that is true, give us a good review. As always, Unfucking the Republic is produced by Manny Faces Media. Oh my God, I never say this, but I'm tired of speaking. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. I love Tom McGovern so much. I didn't get to say anything after the Canada episode about how incredible this guy is. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by me, Max, and distributed by 99 and Manny and all of the hopes and dreams and aspirations of this little republic. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at unftr.substack.com. 